The word of God reads this, Psalm 98, a song. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar in all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your word, and we're grateful for how it exhorts us to worship you. And so as we turn our attention from worshiping you through singing to worshiping you through meditating on your word, we pray that you would allow for your word to have its effects on our hearts. We're grateful that you have, have allowed for your word to be faithfully preserved so that we could be sure of the scriptures that we hold in our hands, that these truly are your words, the words that you want us to have, the words that you want us to study, to know, and to respond to. And so we're grateful, Father, for your word, and we pray that uh, it would have its effect on our lives this evening. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. Well, if I were to ask you, what brings you joy in this life? What would you say? Is it knowing that you've done a great job at work and that your family and your workplace acknowledge you? Is it the ability to try new foods and new restaurants with your good friends? Is it the ability to travel and to experience new places, new locales with family and friends? What would you honestly, honestly now, say brings you the most joy? And there are a lot of things that can bring you joy in this life. But what brings you the most joy? Now, I will honestly say that the things that have brought me the most joy in my life recently is the ability to spend time with family, right? especially because of the pandemic. Right? We, we haven't been able to see our family. We haven't been able to uh, enjoy their presence as much. And so when I've had that time to see my family, to spend time with my family, I've really come to appreciate that family time uh, whenever we get to have it. Now, it is certainly good for us to find joy in our families, in our friends, in our work, in our leisure, but we were not meant to find our ultimate joy in the things of this world. Now, I understand that not every moment of our lives will be filled with this kind of inexpressible joy. There will be a time where we will weep. There will be a time where we will mourn. But as you remember from our study of Galatians 6, 
the fruit of the Spirit, right, joy, is not exclusive to when we're happy. Joy is that calm and settled knowledge that we will always be with the Lord. And so even when we are hurting, we can have joy because we know that nothing can ever take us away from our Lord's love and care for, for us. Right? Nothing can ever take us away from his love for us. And nothing can take that from us. Nothing. And, this, and what we'll see in our text this, this evening is that our cause for joy is not just influenced by the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of our God, but it's found in the fact that God reigns as king. Our joy is found in the fact that God reigns as king. Psalm 98 is what we would call a theocratic song, psalm. It's a psalm that talks about God as king, God reigning as king. And specifically, what we're going to see in our study tonight is that our joy is strengthened. It is emboldened because our king is coming to reign. He rides in as a conquering king. And it is because of that, we worship him with great joy. But how do we come to this conclusion? And why is it important for us to worship the Lord in this joyous way? Well, we're going to find out this evening as we look at three reasons why Christians joyfully worship God. Three reasons why Christians joyfully worship God. And the first reason that Christians joyfully worship God is because worship celebrates God's salvation. Worship celebrates God's salvation. Verse 1 says this, O oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The psalmist, he begins by commanding that a new song be sung to Yahweh. But why a new song? Or why a new song? It's not like he has anything against old songs. It's not like he has a certain preference for the style of songs that are sung. This command for a new song highlights the fact that there are still more things to be sung about God. I mean, the fact that we have thousands upon thousands, perhaps even millions of different songs that we could sing to the Lord is evidence of the fact that we've not uh, run out of things to write about. Right? We've not run out of things to sing about. Right? Think about it. Why is it that our favorite artists, our favorite secular artists, continue to write new songs? I'm sure part of it is because of money, but I think another part of it also just comes from our favorite artists' desire to contribute more to the stories that they tell to the world. Or they have new stories, they have new experiences that they want to share with you through song. Or they have a message that they want people to hear, and so they let that message out through singing. And in a similar way, the psalmist is reminding us there are so many things that we could be singing about when it comes to who God is. And there's so many songs that can be written about God. There is still a need to bring out new songs that highlight the glory of God. And in particular, the reason 
why we are called to sing a new song to Yahweh is because he has done wonderful things. He's done wonderful things, or he has done wondrous works. This particular word the psalmist uses here when he says wonderful things is the word in the Old Testament used to describe miracle. It was what was translated as miracle or miraculous. God has done miraculous things. So we sing because we recognize that God has done something just out of this world. He's done something miraculous. What did God do? Well, we see that God has single-handedly gained the victory for himself. Now, we don't know the historical context of Psalm 98. There are no um, time markers here to indicate what victory the psalmist is referring to. But what we do know is that God doesn't need any help. God doesn't need any help. There, and this is where well-meaning Christians can get in trouble when it comes to social justice issues uh, and, and other social issues. Or we think God needs our help. We think that without us, God won't be able to affect change here in this life. But when we overemphasize our responsibility to make change in this world, right, we place all of it on our own shoulders. Now, it's our responsibility, our duty to bring in the kingdom, to establish the kingdom. What happens is that we can forget that God might use us as instruments in order to accomplish his purposes, but he does not need us as if he is helpless without us. He doesn't need us as if he desperately needs that assistance to establish righteousness here on this earth. He can do it himself. If he wanted to, he'd just do it just like that. He doesn't need our help. Now, we are responsible to try and live as Christians here in this world, to be good examples, to point people to Christ, but God doesn't need our help to establish the kingdom. Right? He can do that on his own. And so the psalmist's uh, emphasis on God's right hand and his holy arm, the, these, these are references to God's great power. They are references to his might. He doesn't need our help. He is perfectly capable of saving people on his own. And yet, he chooses to, uh, yet he chooses to use us, his servants, as instruments to advance his plans so that we can see God's power. But make no mistake, God does not need to use us to accomplish his plans. Right? His plans are not dependent upon us as if, you know, if, if suddenly um, the pastoral staff of this church gets wiped out, it's not like this church will crumble and die. That's why we have a plurality of elders. Right? And they'll be able to capably lead the church until we find someone else that God will bring to shepherd the flock. No one is indispensable. Everyone is replaceable even the pastors. Right? So his plans do not depend upon us. When we are faithless, he removes us and he puts someone else in. Right? So it doesn't depend entirely on us. God can do it on his own. 
Right? If he chooses to use us to demonstrate his great power, then it is for our benefit. It's for our benefit as he reminds us that we would not have been able to do it without him. And a lot of times when we get through things and we're not really sure how we did it, but we did it, that's God. Right? It's because of him that you were able to do it. That's, that's why whenever you guys ask me, like, how, how is it that you balance whatever that you do? I, I jokingly say, well, it's God's grace and coffee. Right? Sometimes it is coffee, but it's really God's grace. Right? It's primarily God's grace. Coffee could do nothing. Right? Coffee doesn't really matter. But if it wasn't for God's grace, if it wasn't for God's strength, there's nothing that I could do. There's nothing that any of you could do. Right? God's very grace is the thing that allows for us to live and breathe and move. Now, think about it some of the wonderful things that God has done in the past. And he, he's done this all by himself. When he took down Egypt with the plagues, did God need Moses' help? No, he didn't, right? He used Moses, but he didn't need Moses. Right? He brought those plagues down by himself. He allowed for Moses to be his mouthpiece so that everyone would know for certain this is why this is happening. Right, because Yahweh is delivering his people. That is why this is all happening. This is not random. This is not a bunch of freak storms and freak occurrences that are happening just out of nowhere. Right, but God is doing it. The God of Israel, Yahweh, is doing it. When God sustained Israel, when they were wandering through the wilderness, and he provided them food and water, was it because Moses raised his staff? Was it because Moses prayed that God did that? Was it because of Moses' piety that God did that? No. Right? God did that to demonstrate his power, to show that he loves his people, that he cares for his people. When, when, all, uh, when, when they were wandering through the wilderness and the nations were trying to stop them, when they were trying to ambush them from behind like cowards, God allowed for these slave people, these herdsmen, and building builders to successfully fend off these trained soldiers who were trying to kill them. They were able to kill armies, and none of them died. Why? How? Because of God. Right? God did that. God delivered his people. This was all of God's enabling power. In the, New in the New Testament, Jesus performed miracles to demonstrate God's power once again so that people understood that God is absolutely capable to provide your physical needs, like food. He can heal you, he, and he can also raise you from the dead. But also, those things were a smaller point, right? If God can take care of your physical needs, even to the point of raising certain people from the dead, can he not also save you from your sins? He can, right? Our God Yahweh has made it clear that he is all-powerful, that he is ultimately one, and he's defeated sin and death through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He himself, as we just sung earlier, raised Christ from the dead. Right? Through his own power, God gained victory for himself. And the cool thing is, because we are united with him in Christ, that victory that he gains for himself is ours too. That victory that he gained for himself is ours too. We share in that victory. So God's not being selfish. 
he's giving us all the opportunity to be a part of his victory over sin and death. Verses 2 and 3. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So some of you might be thinking, why should I care? Right? Why should I care, Pastor Roger? You're always talking about Old Testament. You're always talking about Israel. Why should I care about what God has done in the past? Right? Why, why should we care about his special love for them and his, and his determination to save them? Why? Well, it's because, it's because the salvation that was promised to them is a salvation that is ultimately available to all who will believe from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation in the future. And so if you want to think about it this way, God granted Israel exclusive access, right? exclusive access to the salvation that he was going to provide to the world, kind of like a demo, if you will. So that the world could see his greatness and the salvation that he offers. So that the world can see that there is no one like Yahweh. There is no one like Yahweh. So he grants for us a front row seat through the scriptures to see how he interacts with Israel. So that we can see that their salvation, that their chosen status, is not because they were any holier than anyone else. It's not because they were any more special than anyone else. Right? They are just as sinful as we are. And yet, and yet, God chooses to set his love on them. Right? He places his love on them, despite their sin. What an amazing God we have. What a, what a wonderfully gracious God that we have who does that. For Israel. And not only do we get to see what he does for those chosen people of his, right, but then he graciously extends the invitation to us. He graciously extends the invitation to us so that we too might experience saving grace. And so if we're paying attention to what God has done to save Israel, to how he's blessed them throughout their history, even though they absolutely do not deserve it, when we look at that, oh, man, what a wonderful Savior we have. What a wonderful God we have. That puts us in awe of him because we know, just like Israel, we don't deserve a thing. Just like Israel, we don't deserve a thing. If anything, we absolutely don't deserve a thing because we weren't a part of his chosen people. Yet he chose to graciously extend salvation to us. Wow. That, that's just amazing that Yahweh would offer salvation to us too. Even though we wanted nothing to do with him. This is the God we worship, church. This is the God we worship. What a great God we have. And, you know, as you look at verse 3, you see that the psalmist, he's building excitement. Yahweh reveals his salvation and his righteousness so that we can see it, right? We can see, hey, there is no one like him, right? The gods of the nations, they don't, they don't hold a candle to him. But we also see that 
we have sin problems. Right? We have sin problems, and yet he is able to save us from those sin problems right? because he's remembered his loving kindness. Right? We sin all the time. Right? We forget that we're supposed to obey him all the time. And yet, because of his loving kindness, his faithful love, he never gives up on us. Right? Yahweh allows us to see through the scriptures Israel's spectacular failures so that we can see his grace, so that we can see that it doesn't matter how much you mess up. It doesn't matter how colossal of a sin you've committed. None of that matters. Because if you truly love God, if you truly repent of your sin and choose to place your faith in Him, right, and you're trying to put the old self off and put the new self on, that you will always have His forgiveness. You will always have His love. That's why we see in the scriptures the spectacular failures of his people. It's not so that we can be like, oh, oh Israel, you bunch of silly people. Oh, how could you do that? You guys are so dumb. No. It's not for us to be proud of ourselves and to make fun of Israel. It's for us to worship God and say, but for the grace of God, so goes I. I would be the exact same as Israel. God does not take his word back. He doesn't take his word back. He is always faithful to keep his word. He is always faithful to keep his promises. And we see these truths not just in the pages of Scripture. We see it in the pages of history as well. God is faithful to save his people. He is always with them. Sure, he might allow for them to be disciplined. Right? We've seen that in the exiles of Israel in, uh, through Assyria and Babylon. But he brought them back to the land. Even in our more recent history, we've seen how his people have gone through the unthinkable through the hands of Nazi Germany. And yet, God has not left his people. He's still with them. The promises that he has to restore them to the land right, to, and to make them prosperous and to bless all the nations through, uh, through them, it's still in play. It's still in play. We're, you know, uh, there's, there's still a lot of things that need to happen before we can say it's fulfilled, but it's still in play. And that means that those of us who get to share in Israel's blessings get to worship, get, get, to, get to trust God in that too. Right? If he's going to be faithful to them, even despite their deepest, darkest sins, he's going to be faithful to us too. Right? We get to share in those promises too. God's salvation is worthy of celebration. He actively involves himself with saving his people. He doesn't send angels to do it. He himself got involved. He could have sent angels, right? He could have been like, well, you know, I'm not really feeling it today. Um, it's, not, it's not really 
what I want to do. Hey, uh, Michael, can, can you go down and, and save my people today, please? Hey, uh, Gabriel, uh, I'm a little busy dealing with uh, these other people over here in America. Can, can, can you go save my people today? He doesn't do that. He himself gets active. He himself saves his people. And if that doesn't put you in awe of what God has done, if this thought doesn't make you want to sing praises as you think about his wonderful deeds, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps the reason is, the, the reason why we're not enthused by the fact that God is one and that he's saved us from our sins is because we've taken our salvation for granted. We've looked at the salvation God's given us and we're like, oh cool, salvation. What a nice gift. Perhaps we think, well, of course. Of course God would save me. Of course he loves me. Have you, have you looked at me? Have you seen me? Of course God loves me. Right? Or, or perhaps, perhaps we are grateful for our salvation, but then we're tempted to think and actually do think, yeah, our salvation is, is wonderful, but, but you just don't understand. My life is just so, so difficult right now. How, how, does, how does God's salvation get me through the stress and, and the troubles that I have today? I know it's going to help me tomorrow. I know it's going to help me in the future, but how does it help me today? I'm so stressed. I'm so tired. I'm so anxious. How does it, God's salvation help me today? Oh, beloved, this is, not to you. this is not new, nor is this to your shame. I don't say this to your shame. Thoughts like these are similar to the thoughts that various people in Israel also had throughout their history. And thoughts like these have gone through the minds of Christians who have gone before us, too. This is nothing new. But why do we think these thoughts at times? Well, it's either because we've forgotten the great wonder that God would save rebellious sinners like us. Right? We're so familiar with that fact that we're just kind of like, what? How is that helpful? Right? We've, we've lost the wonder of God's great power. Or perhaps we've forgotten the great comfort that the power of God, the sovereignty of God, gives us in our trials as we're looking ahead to our uncertain futures. Right? Either way, no matter what it is. It could be more than that, too. Those are just two examples. But when we lose sight of God, when we forget Him, or when we fail to see how His salvation is not just relevant for our salvation from sin, but that it's also relevant for every moment of our lives. Right? Every moment of our lives. It's not just that he saved you from sin, woohoo, and oh well, my life is what it is, and I have to deal with you know, it all on my own. And until he comes back and makes it right, I just have to slog through this life. Right? It's not that. No, brothers and sisters, no. The salvation that he gives is a salvation that undergirds everything. It's the thing that gives you hope. It's the reason why when we are, when we are 
we are under intense burden. And when the weight of the world and the weight of our circumstances is pressing down upon us, our knees might buckle, but we're not smashed. We're not destroyed. Why? Because the hope that we have in God, the hope that we know that has been secured for us in God is the thing that gives us strength to move on. You see, because he has saved us, because he loves us, because he powerfully works in our lives to make us more like Christ, we have every confidence that no matter what we go through in this life, God is always with us. And he's always working for our good. See, as his adopted child, you and I will never and can never be separated from him. Yes, you may suffer. Yes, you may fail. Yes, life might be so hard that you feel like you won't be able to bear it another moment. But, as the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 42, when those things happen, because of the relationship that we have with Yahweh, we remind our souls, Hope in Yahweh, for I will again worship him. And that's the beauty of our intimate relationship with the God of the universe. And the beauty of our relationship with the God of the universe is that there's nothing too big for him to handle. There is nothing too big for him to handle. You know, in John 10, 28 to 29, Jesus, he's talking about how he is the great shepherd. And he's the good shepherd. And he talks about his role as the shepherd. And he makes note of the fact that no one can take his sheep from his hand. And he goes on to the fact that no one can take his sheep from the Father's hand. Why are there two people mentioned? Not only because he wants to show that he and the Father are one, but it's also because he wants to give you a reason to rejoice. God the Father and God the Son together are holding you in their hands. Which means... And nobody can take you from them. Right? Nobody can take you from them. So the great salvation that God has secured for all of us in, uh, or um, the great salvation that God has secured for all of us is a, a salvation that we make known to the ends of the earth. We want other people to know about this too, so that people like you and me, who were once far off, can hear the good news of the gospel to respond to the gospel in saving faith and rest secure in that salvation, knowing that Yahweh knows us by name and will be faithful to bring us all the way home. Now, do not let this amazing news of the gospel get lost on you, brothers and sisters. This is not just uh, good news. This is good news that leads us to celebrate God's salvation and make his salvation known to all the nations. And this brings us to the second reason why we are joyfully worshiping God in this life. It's because worship celebrates God's greatness. Worship celebrates God's greatness. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. So in response to Yahweh's great salvation that he wins for himself and for the people who are united with him, the whole earth is called to shout joyfully 
to him. Joyful shouting, uh, it, it refers to the kind of celebration that people might have at the coronation of a king or another kind of joyful, uh, joyful festival. Now, there are times, I'm not going to deny this, there are times when the worship of our God is not always joyful and loud. Sometimes it is appropriate for us to worship him soberly, somberly, right, contemplatively. There, there are other times where we can you know, rejoice and, and be loud too. Right? And there's, there's a range of it. Right? There's a range of it. And so, you know, it's not just supposed to be all praises, all enthusiasm, all excitement, no sobriety, right? Or just all depressing thoughts, all sober, somber thoughts, right? It's, it's not one or the other. It's both. It's the whole range of emotion. That's why God gave us those emotions. Um, the command to break forth in the Hebrew is a similar idea to exploding cheers that you might hear at a sports game when the home team wins, do you, well, for those of you who are San Franciscans, or at least fans of Bay Area teams, do you remember what it was like when the Giants and the Warriors won their championships for the first time in a long time in the early 2010s? Do you remember that? Right, even if you weren't a sports fan, you were watching with the rest of us, right, with nervous anticipation. You probably had no idea what was going on, but the people who knew what was going on, they were freaking out even more. And then when that final out was recorded, when the final seconds ticked off that clock, and it was clear that the Giants had won the World Series, when it was clear that the Warriors were the NBA champions, what happened? We, we turned around and we went home. Right, we threw our pizza on the floor. No! We were exploding with happiness. We were exploding with joy, especially the Warriors. Forty long years of no championships. And now we get to say, we are the best. We are the champions. That's this idea of breaking forth. When we worship God, we break forth in celebration. Now, as we consider the salvation of our God, that he has graciously provided for us, and the fact that there is therefore no more condemnation for all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, are we, ex are we as excited about that reality as we are of the triumphs of our sports teams? Are we excited about the fact that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ? Are we excited about the impending return of Christ in this way where we're breaking forth in celebration? Not always, right? Not always. Now, again, this, the psalmist is not asking for us to respond with raucous joy to everything you know, of course, you know, there are times where we mourn, there are times where we grieve, that, and that we weep with those who weep, and that's appropriate. But what we're reminded here is that because of what God has done in our lives, we cannot forget that joyful worship of Yahweh has a real place in our lives. This is a, 
This is expected to be a part of our lives. It belongs in our lives just as much as lament belongs in our lives. Right? There is balance. But this needs to be here. Right? It needs to be here. And if it's not, we have to figure out why. Well, why is it that I'm not excited about Christ's return? Right? Oh, Jesus, I want you to come back. I really do. But can you wait until I get a chance to go to Europe? Can you wait till I get a chance to get married? Can you wait until I get a chance to yeah, whatever it is? Are we in danger of loving the life that we have more than we love our Lord. More than the excitement of the fact that when he comes back, no more sin. No more suffering. No more evil. Right? That should be something that gets you excited. But the fact that he reigns with justice, that should be something that gets you excited because that's what we want right now, right? Right? That should get you excited. And yet, sometimes we're just like, well, not just yet, Lord. Please, not just yet. Although, except, you know, when we're in finals, though, and we're, we haven't done our, our uh, we haven't had a chance to finish studying or, or, whatever, or um, you know, we have big projects, big papers. We're just like, Lord, please come. I don't want to finish, right? That's the only time when we're really excited about God's return. Other than that, though, it's kind of like, wait, Lord, I need to live my life first. Anyway, the point of this message, the point of this question about joyous worship is not, uh, is not that we should always be raucous in terms of our worship of the Lord. But it's the fact that we cannot forget that joyful worship is a regular part of our lives. Even in difficult circumstances, the hope that we have because of our salvation gives us the strength to carry on. It can be the thing that gives us encouragement and energy when we are weary. So do not forget to think about, to respond to Yahweh's salvation with joyful worship, joyous worship, because of what he, is, what he has done in our lives and, and who he is. Verses 5 and 6. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the king, the Lord. The worship that we sing does not always have to be accompanied by music, right? We could go a cappella from time to time, but at least in this particular case, the psalmist is calling for the worship celebration to incorporate musical instruments as we rejoice with Yahweh in his presence. And this list of instruments given here is not the only instruments that are allowed in worship. It's not an exclusive list, it's just a possible list of instruments that can be used. Now, instruments are not, our attention here is focused on the fact that we are called to worship Yahweh right, through music. And as we think about our worship before the king, we tend to think of our worship as singing with music, in part just because that's what we're used to in our church experience. Now, this, ex this expectation is not wrong, though, because God created music to glorify him and to point as to his creativity and his complexity. God is a very creative person. You just look at all the different animals that he made. 
and all the different physical features that he's given every single animal. God is very creative. And he allows for us to take part in music to kind of share that with him. Right? And he, he's the one who even uh, has created music anyway. Right? And so as we engage with music, this is one of the things that points us to the fact that there must be a creator. That there must be a creator because of the glorious complexity of it all. And with these instruments listed, right, with the lyre, you have a, a, a string instrument. Right, with the trumpet and the horn, you have two different types of wind instruments. Right, who, who thought, who thought, hey, you know what I want to do? I'm going to put some strings on this little, um, on this little U-shaped thingy, and I'm going to change the tension for each string to create different pitches. Right, who would have thought that? Right, why, 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 do we, why do we think that? It's because God put creativity in us. Right, to, to recognize, recognize the, the changes in frequency with, with tension. Right, to recognize the beauty of, of melody, right, as opposed to, uh, sometimes, uh, harmony. Um, you know, when it comes to musical instruments, right, whoever thought, hey, let me grab the horn of a ram, put a little metal tip on it, and blow. Why would you do that? Because God put it in the minds of people that this is another way that we can make a joyful noise to Him. Music, musical instruments, were given to us by God to aid us in our singing. They are gifts that God gives us so that we can bring Him glory as we rejoice in the arts, as we rejoice in the creative abilities that He's given to some of us. Right? Not every single one of us has creative abilities. Well, okay, that's not true. You have creative abilities. It's just not as good as other people. Right? But he's given us these things so that we can glorify him. Right? It's not so that you can say, look at me. I am so good at, you know, uh, I am so good at all, all these different arts things that I'm good at. Right? It's not for us. It's for us to point to our creator right? who gave us those skills and gave us the, that, uh, that appreciation for what we do. And as we celebrate God's greatness together, we want to engage, you know, particularly in, in music, right? we want to engage our minds. We want to engage our emotion and our skill into proclaiming to one another and everyone who can hear us about the great things that Yahweh has done. Now, you've got to pause and think about this for a moment. Is this how you worship? Are you fully engaged? with what is going on during worship? Are you fully engaged with the lyrics that you see on the screen? Are you fully engaged in trying to listen as best you can, even though you're tired after a long work day or a long school day, to what the Word of God has to say? Or to train your mind, to discipline your mind to think about what God's Word is saying so that you can respond to it, react to it? Are you engaged? Or are you thinking about other things? Are you thinking about the fact that, oh, I really wish that I stopped off at McDonald's before I came here because I am hungry? Or are you thinking, oh, I really can't wait till this guy gets off the stage and I need to go home and I need to go to sleep because I have work at 5 a.m. in the morning? Are you fully engaged in the worship of Yahweh? 
or are you distracted? Right? Do you view musical worship as optional? Right? Just, ah, whatever, it's just about the singing, who cares? Right? The only thing that matters is the preaching of the word. Well, it's kind of true, but not really, though. Right? All of it, all of it is important to God. A commentator on, on this psalm says this, the psalms that we sing now are a rehearsal for what is to come. The psalms that we sing now are a rehearsal. We are practicing for that future day when we will sing praises to Yahweh in heaven, having seen firsthand all that he has been able to do and done in our lives. Right? That is the thing that fuels worship. That's the thing that fuels joy. When you see those lyrics on the screen, you understand what's been going on in your life. You understand that God has always been there with you. And as you read those lyrics, as you sing those lyrics, you're saying, amen. Yes, yes, and amen. That's the kind of engagement that we, have, that we ought to have with the music that we sing. Not because the music is on the same level as the scriptures, but because they are teaching us scriptures. They're reminding us of the scriptures. Right? And as your soul, as your soul rejoices with what you're singing, you can say, hallelujah, what a great Savior we have. I'm sure all of you have heard this at some point in your lives, but worship is not just an activity, right? It's not just an activity that we do on a Friday night or on a Sunday morning. It is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. Singing is a part of that lifestyle. Right? But everything else that you do in life is also a part of worship too. But anyways, you know, talking about, because this is, this song is talking about music. So I'm not going to get off on other things, right? But when we're talking about music, I'm not saying that the only kind of music that you guys can listen to is worship music, right? Gettys or sovereign gaze only. I'm not saying that. Okay? I'm not saying that you can't listen to hip-hop. I'm not saying that you can't listen to uh, rock or whatever else that you like, R&B. Right? It's not just something, music is not just something that is nice to listen to as, as uh, we try and get through our day or, or uh, something that we use to motivate us to work out. Music is a tool with which we get to celebrate God. Music is a tool with which we get to celebrate God. It assists us in that celebration. And it assists us in making God known to others. But why do you think that during Christmas time, churches of all sorts, even the ones that don't believe the Bible, put on Christmas concerts? It's because they want to draw people in with their music to point to the God that they believe in. There's a hope. Well, anyways, that's why it's so important for us to make sure that we are singing good songs and that we hold to the scriptures. But anyways, right, music is a vehicle to which we point people to God and say, He is worthy to be worshipped. He is worthy to be followed. And that leads us to our final reason why Christians joyfully worship God, which is, the, that, uh, which is that worship anticipates God's return. Worship anticipates God's return. Uh, verses 7 and 8. Let the sea roar in all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. And so, in response to what God has done, the creation worships 
Yahweh. The seas and all the life that is in them use their voice, right? The voice that God gave them to worship him. The world does that too. And as the psalmist continues in verse 8, we see that the rest of nature, the other aspects of nature, the rivers and the mountains, they're all called to worship Yahweh because he is worthy of all worship. And creation knows it. Creation knows it. Now that's not surprising to us because Paul also indicates that creation knows that uh, that Yahweh is worthy of worship in Romans 8, right? Because they're anticipating God's deliverance. In Romans 8, Paul writes this in verses 18 to 22. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until, together until now. You see, the first sin from Adam and Eve might have seemed innocent, and when we think about it, because, well, the only thing that they were guilty of is not listening to God. They rebelled against his clear command, but they just weren't listening to him, right? They didn't hurt anybody. And they didn't hurt anybody. So why is it such a big deal to God? Right? Why is it sin? Well, it's sin because, well, it is an act of rebellion against God. Right? It directly defies his command. He is completely holy, completely pure. Right? And so they introduce evil into all of creation. They introduced death into all of creation. And so if you could say, well, they just didn't listen. Well, yeah, true, right? But because of their inability to listen, all of creation is subjected to death. I would probably be right in thinking that you're all going to agree with me that that is harm to people, yes? Right? That is harm to people. Bringing death into the world, that is harm to people. That's harm to the creation. Because of their sin, Adam and Eve made it so that every single human being would inherit their sin nature and that death and corruption would affect all of God's creation. Remember, after God created everything, he said that it was good, right? He called it good. It was perfect because it was perfect from him. It was, it, was, it was just as he intended it to be. But the introduction of sin plunged everything that God created into the clutches of sin so that all that we see right now is only a shadow of what God intended it to be. One sin was enough to break everything, which is why all of creation is groaning for that day when God will come and set everything right. However... In Psalm 98, right? going back to Psalm 98, creation is not groaning as they're longing for God to set things right because they, like us, have a range. And here, they're rejoicing. They're rejoicing. Why, why is the creation rejoicing here instead of groaning? It's because, it's because um, the joy that is being sung 
or I mean, uh, the joy that, that is that's happening as the rivers clap their hands and as the mountains are singing together for joy is before the Lord. Because he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Right? Those three parallel lines, the fact that uh, he's going to come judge the earth, he's going to judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Right? Those three parallel lines of poetry highlight why creation is joyful. They are joyful because they are anticipating that Yahweh is coming to earth to judge. To judge. And this is not judgment exclusively in the sense of punishment, but the kind of judge, judgment um, that will bring justice to all. Justice to all. The standard of judgment here is God's righteousness. His holiness is the standard for which he judges people. And so we see that it's, it's fair, it's equitable, it's fair judgment. There are no special favors. No one will be given, uh, no one will be evaluated according to a different set of rules. Everyone will be evaluated according to God's standard of righteousness. Right? We're all judged by the fact uh, or by how we have obeyed God and honored him by believing upon Jesus Christ. And so, as the creation anticipates God coming again to judge right, for, the, for the evil, for the wicked, their judgment is what they've earned. Right? The wages of sin is death. They're going to get their eternal punishment. And for those of us who have had our sin debt paid by Jesus Christ, his judgment will for us bring reward. But it's justice for all. Right? It's according to God's standard. And we have a wonderful God who reigns righteously. This gives us every reason to worship because we know that we can trust him. He's not going to be swayed. He's not going to be corrupted. You know, pol political pressure is not going to change his mind. Money will not change his mind. You cannot slip God a 20. You cannot sl slip him a, a $100 bill, and he'll be like, oh, okay, why don't you come on in? Right? You cannot do that. He judges according to his holy character, and this is one of the reasons why we can joyously look forward to his return, because we know when he comes, everything will be made right. And he will. He will deal with every single injustice that is on this earth and he will deal with it appropriately he'll deal with it with his full wrath so we know we can trust him and for those of us who have placed our faith in jesus christ he doesn't deal with us like that, right? Because there is no more condemnation for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ. Instead, instead, he deals with us in love. He gives us, gives us the rewards for faithful service to him. So what a privilege we have to worship the one true God who is mighty to save and who judges with absolute righteousness. There are many reasons Christians joyously worship God. And some of those reasons we've examined tonight. It's because worship helps us celebrate God's salvation. It helps us celebrate God's greatness. And it helps us anticipate God's return. And though we recognize that there is a wide range of what worshiping God might look like in our lives, our psalm tonight taught us about our joyful worship in God and before God, in his presence. And because 
of the great things that he has done. He deserves all the worship, all the glory, all the honor. So this, the, joyful, uh, the joyous worship that we are encouraged to do in this life, it's a rehearsal of what it will look like to worship God after he judges the world and makes everything right. And so whenever we have the opportunity to participate in joyful worship with our brothers and sisters, I pray that we would value it and we would treasure rehearsal time together because it's only a preview of the wonderful worship that we're going to have with God and our brothers and sisters when we get to heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for the reminders of your wonderful salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would help us not take worship for granted, not take you for granted. Help us, Lord, to treasure you, to savor you, to recognize that the fact that we get to call ourselves your sons or your daughters is an immense privilege. It's not something that we can just kind of ignore, but this is something that brings us great, great joy. We pray that as we worship, we would recognize your greatness and your holiness. May you be honored in everything, Lord God. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen.